0: If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me once again to the book of 1 Samuel. Again, I know some of you are getting lazy in your Bible turning because of the screen behind me. That's okay. Uh, But I'd love for you to bring your Bibles um, so that you can have the text before you as we go back to it and return to it. Uh, I'm not about just reading it and then going off on my own flight of fancy. I'm interested in directing us to what God is saying to us. And so it's helpful for you to have a Bible in front of you to be able to refer and and go back to it as these words behind me, they appear and then they disappear magically. Uh, But no matter, turn with me to uh, the book of 1 Samuel. Last week, as I said, we began a new series uh, on the life of David. This enormous figure. Enormous, not literally. He was actually... A small guy, the smallest of the brothers, uh, the smallest of the sons of Jesse you might remember, but he is a significant figure in ancient history, the most, one of the most important figures in the story of God's redemption. And so last week we introduced David as the scriptures introduce David, not with a birth account. Not with a story from his boyhood, but with his unlikely anointing as the next king of Israel. But remember, there's a problem. There's a potential problem because there already is a king on the throne. Saul sits there, and it'll be 20 years or so before David assumes the role of king. But during that time, during that 20 years, this fact will become clear, that God's spirit and God's favor have left Saul, and they have come upon King David. They reside firmly now with this shepherd boy, anointed king. David will rise at Saul's demise. We're not going to go much into that today. We're not going to unpack that much in this series. And it by itself is is kind of a hard truth. It's kind of one wrapped in a bit of mystery. Right, for instance, in the passage following where we left off last week, we're not going to look at verses 14 through 23 of chapter 16, but they speak of this reality of God's providential outworking. Saul is tormented by an evil spirit. Meanwhile, David, now filled with the Holy Spirit, assumes the role of soothing Saul. It's a hard passage. But we're reminded that this is not about us. Not about what we're comfortable with. This is about what God is doing among his people and through his servant David. This is about God's choice. About God's purposes for David. And that brings us to our text today. This is the first full-blown story of David's life and perhaps the most well-known story in the entire Bible. This confrontation between the newly anointed teenager king-to-be and the Philistine warrior Goliath. i got to admit, brothers and sisters, preaching this, which I've never done this before, I've never preached this story, Preaching a story like this, one familiar, one so familiar, is daunting. I mean, you, you know the details, many of you know the details of this story like the back of your hand, and it holds, for many of you, a certain nostalgia, a certain sentimentality, right? And yet I fear that some of us have actually missed why the story is here, what it is primarily about, and therefore we have missed the story of what this story is pointing to. So it's my hope to dig in and to show you that this morning. I've trimmed out some of the details of the story just to make a lengthy text a little less lengthy. It's still going to be a lengthy text that I'm going to read. It's not that the details are unimportant. They actually are important. I mean, the fact that we learn that David is supposed to take 10 loaves of bread and 10 rounds of cheese to his brother. I mean, why do we need to know that he's taking cheese to his brother's It's almost like the 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 writer wants to say, this is real life, folks. Like they needed food. They this is just real life. It's not a fairy tale. So while the details are important, we're we're not going to focus on them this morning. We don't want to miss the forest in the trees. And so I've picked a little bit of this story. Hopefully you can fill in the blanks of what is not read. This morning, you can read it later this afternoon. I'd encourage you to do so. Listen as I read and if you're able and if you want to sit this one out, you can. It's a long text, but if you're able, I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 17 verses 3 through 11 and then 32 through 52. I was listening to a preacher this week and he said something that that I want to say. I could say every week. What you're about to hear from my mouth is the only inspired thing you're going to hear this morning. This is true. What you hear from me after this, I hope, is true. I hope it's a faithful representation of of what this is. But this is God's voice, his word to you. So listen, 1 Samuel 17, chapter chapter 17, verse 3. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his leg and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and it's, his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul?' Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will all be your servants. But if I prevail against him and I kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed. And we're greatly afraid. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head. He clothed him with a coat of mail and David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried to go in vain for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. And so David put them off and he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose, And came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine and David put his hand in his bag. He took out a stone and he slung it and he struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him with his head cut and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shaarim as far as Gath and Ekron. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. This morning as we jump back into the life of David, I remind you that last week I began with this, this statement about David's anointing. I said that that was a story about God's deliverance. And yet last week, upon the anointing of this teenager king to be, it was really about a story of the promise of deliverance, right? Right? Deliverance to come. Well, today's passage obviously brings that promise to a reality, at least in part. Two things for all you note-takers, even those of you who aren't note-takers. Two things that I think we can learn and be reminded of this morning as we walk through this familiar story, and the first one is this. We are a people desperately in need of rescue. We are a people desperately in need of rescue. Buster Douglas and Andy Ruiz Jr. The 1980 US men's Olympic ice hockey team. Rocky, Rudy, the blind side, Invincible, Aaron Brockovich, Hidden Figures, what do all of those names and or movie titles and or descriptions of sports teams have in common? Yes, they are all great stories, some of them fictional, some of them not, but they are all what we would term in our culture underdogs. Buster Douglas mo- no- knocked out Mike Tyson. Andy Ruiz Jr. knocked out an- Anthony Joshua. The U.S. Olympic hockey team of 1980 beat the powerhouse of Russia. And I could go on and on. Everyone loves an underdog story, right? Against seemingly insurmountable odds, these men and women overcame adversity. They, they battled the man. They stood up against racism. And we cheered them on the whole way, whether we were watching it, whether we were listening to it, whether we were reading it. Well, what does that have to do with this story? As we come to these stories in the Bible, we often, sometimes appropriately, sometimes not appropriately, we look to identify ourselves with someone in the story. So who are we in this story? Well, in our affinity for underdogs, that's where we want to place ourselves, right? We're the small shepherd David boy. Small shepherd boy David. And so, sometimes we hear sermons like, how to slay your giants? Or do you have the stones? I'm not preaching either of those sermons today. Because here's the thing. That's not us. This is not an underdog story for our benefit. We are not David. Sure, as we saw last week, as God reminded us, God loves to use the least likely. He loves to show himself powerful in our weakness. But here's the thing it's his power, it's our weakness. So, who are we in this story? We are the needy people of Israel. We're the ones cowering and helpless in the face of opposition. We are people in need of rescue. So let's talk about the story a little bit. Hopefully I can make this point a little more. It's a face-off, right? It's an ancient face-off between two armies in the Valley of Elah. It's a literal valley with a stream-running between the two hilltops it's about 12 to 14 miles west of Bethlehem on one hilltop is the army of Israel on the other hilltop is the army of the Philistines this persistently pesky invading nation that has plagued God's people for years they hate Yahweh they hate his people And here they are on the hunt inside the borders of the promised land. And so there's a standoff. And it's a standoff created by this representative combat challenge that has been given. And the Philistines, they feel pretty good about this challenge. I'm sure it was their idea. Their champion, Goliath, he is a beast of a man. One of the things we've seen, even in this brief time in First Samuel, is that height has been a persistent thing that has come up, right? Samuel noticed the eldest brother of David's height, and that reminded us of Saul's height and formidable appearance. Well, this champion named Goliath, he sure checks that box of height. He's somewhere between seven to nine feet tall. And a man with that kind of frame has some strength to him, right? It's underlined by the fact that the armor that he wears, though it's given in ancient measurement, it's where it, it weighs over 125 pounds. The spear alone in his hand is something like 20 pounds. He has all the latest and greatest weapons bronze helmet on his head, armor on his legs. This guy is ready to do some damage. He's even got the swagger. He's got a mouth full of Old Testament smack talk. Literally, he says in verse 8, am I not the Philistine? That's literally what it says, not am I a Philistine. Am I not the Philistine? I mean, who else would there be? Meanwhile, you guys, you are your servants of Saul. He doesn't even acknowledge Yahweh. The response of those who see him, who see as the world sees, they cower in fear. Even the king of God's people, the formidable Saul, who remember was a head above everyone else in terms of his own frame. Even Saul himself dares not step into the valley. And this is significant. Saul is called to lead and protect God's people. And he's got nothing. I mean, perhaps he should have gone back to Deuteronomy 9 too, and and remembered that the Lord told him, the Lord told his people that they would encounter enemies great and tall. He might have cried out to the Lord who said that he would subdue those enemies. But he doesn't. He can't because he sees with worldly eyes. Just like Samuel struggled to see as the Lord saw. Meanwhile, this blasphemous pagan Opposes God's rule, dishonors his name, and does it day after day after day after day. Verse 16 tells us that this went on for 40 days and 40 nights. God's people are in need of rescue. They need their king. Brothers and sisters, as we hear this story and as we digest it, we're no different. Our need is no different. And our response, if we're honest, is no different. What do we need rescue from? Well, Goliath not only represents an ancient people standing on a hilltop opposed to God's name, but as we listen to this as new covenant believers, Goliath is all sp- structures and systems and spirits and sin that oppose God's rule. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. He reminded the Ephesian church that they don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. Our enemy may not be standing before us in armor, but he is no less real. Our sin the brokenness and the blasphemy of our world, and particularly our final enemy, death, are all insurmountable opponents. So what do we do? Do we grit our teeth? Do we gird ourselves up and slay these giants? Actually, that's not what the Bible's about. The Bible is about the story of what God has done. No, we need rescue. And rescue has come. And that's the second truth that I want us to camp out on for a few minutes. God's people are in need. Our champion has come. Our champion has come. Yes, we we love. I love just as much as the rest of you. Love the underdog stories. But even more than that, I love the story of Gandalf calling the eagles to save Bilbo and the dwarves as they're stuck. Their backs against the wall. There is no hope. They're going to die at the hand of the evil orcs. And they're saved And I love that story even more because it's us. It's me. And it takes salvation out of my hands. As we get back into this scene, back into this story, the situation in the Valley of Elah, it looks hopeless. That is, until the king who is not yet king, the true king, arrives on the scene. Where's he been? Well, he's been shepherding He's not sent there to fight. He's sent there to support the effort of his brothers. But there are three things I want you to see about David under this point of our champion has come. The first is that he hears and sees, the second is that he speaks, and the third is that he saves. So what does he see? Well, it actually begins with what he hears. Verse 23, Goliath spoke the same words as before, and David heard them. What David heard was the pompous blasphemy of an enemy of Yahweh. Of course, it was the same thing everybody else had heard and had been hearing for days and days and days. But only David seems to really hear what is going on here. We know this because he asks a good question. The key question in verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Do you hear that? This is a theologically loaded question. And interestingly enough, it's the first time David speaks in the Scriptures. It's the first words we hear out of his mouth. This is what he breaks his silence with. David is the one who, only one who seemingly understands that Yahweh's honor is at stake in this. David sees the whole thing differently. Now, some have wanted to argue, we skip these verses, but some have wanted to argue that David was actually interested in the rewards that were offered by Saul in verses 25. Riches, the king's daughter, freedom for the family. David asked this question in verse 26, what shall be given to the man who defeats? But I don't think he's asking because he wants it. I think he's asking it because he can't believe it. This is the kind of motivation that God's king is using against this guy? A marriage and riches? Meanwhile, he just spews out slander against our God? I think David is in unbelief. David's a man after God's own heart. David's identity It's as a child of a covenant-keeping God, the same God who parted the Red Sea, the same God who parted the Jordan, who tore down Jericho. You see, David is showing himself to be the true king because he sees clearly. His thinking is theocentric because he truly knows Yahweh. David sees. Secondly, David speaks. He speaks first to the king. And and notice that David speaks first. In the ancient world, when you came into the presence of a king, you didn't speak until you were spoken to. But David is the true king. So he will speak first even though Saul doesn't realize that he's the true king. And listen to what he says. Listen to the kingly words of David. Verse 32, let no man's heart fail because of this man. Your servant will go. And the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David doesn't assert himself. He's concerned about God's people. He's concerned about Yahweh's honor. And he looks to Yahweh's past care. Saul doesn't see it. Saul can't remember what God has done. All he sees is from this worldly perspective of this big dude covered in armor. And he reinforces that because as he gets ready for the battle, what does he do? You better put this on. You better put this on and instead David chooses a sling and we don't really know what this looks like maybe you've seen kind of pictorial representations of it I actually went on YouTube there's a little history channel thing about David and Goliath it's pretty cheesy but it does show a sling I remember making one actually as a little boy if that's not a nerdy pastor kid thing to do I don't know what is but I made a sling and tried to sling it. A sling was just a leather pouch with two long leather thongs and you put a stone in it. You'd use the centrifugal force. You would let go of one of the thongs and that thing would shoot out. I mean, these projectiles would go at a hundred miles an hour and they could be accurate. At least ancient historians say they could be accurate from 200 yards away. So David gets this thing that he's used to using. Sure, David wasn't going after him with a, you know, a foam pool stick or something. David's good with this thing. But as good as David is, verse 5 shows us David's trust was not in his ability to swing this sling, it was in his God. So he speaks to his foe, Goliath. He says, you come to me with sword and spear. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He would later sing about this in Psalm chapter 20, verse seven. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. He continues to Goliath. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head, skipping a bit, that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. As one commentator, I think appropriately quipped, there's no reason why the Philistines should have all the juicy lines. So David gives his own Old Testament smack talk. Notice that David's speech is 63 verses. The whole combat report is just 36 verses. It's David's speech that's really the important thing. These are the important theological realities. So David speaks. He speaks to Saul. He speaks to Goliath. And then lastly, David will save. He has seen, he has spoken, now he will save. And the fight is it's kind of over before it even starts, right? David rushes him, and what does he do? He literally stones the blasphemer, which is exactly what God's law requires, that the blasphemer be stoned. His brother thought he was just a punk. We skipped over those verses. It's just a pain in the rear, little brother. Saul thought he was too green and naive. Goliath thought he was a joke and an insult to his manhood, but Yahweh proved them all wrong. David didn't prove him wrong. Yahweh proved him wrong. The true king has secured salvation. The champion has been proven. Our champion has come. Of course there's more going on here than just this ancient battle right as Paul told the Colossians these things are a shadow but the substance is Christ and so let me bring your attention as we close let me bring your attention to a couple things that I think make this even clear: that the substance is Christ in verses 4 and in verses 23 Goliath is called what he's called a champion that's how most English translations translate it. But the Hebrew phrase there literally means man in the middle. The man between two armies. Of course, it describes this scene long ago, both the geography as well as the representative nature of this fight. But as David shows himself to be the true middleman, we are pointed to the true champion between a holy God and a sin that so easily entangles we have an advocate Paul said to Timothy there is one God and one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus he is our true champion Secondly, Goliath is described in verse 5 as wearing literally scale armor. He is covered in this coat of mail that is like scales. Like scales of a fish. Like scales of a serpent. There's a serpent again in God's land. This is ultimately a battle between two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of her enemy. The first representative, Adam, failed, but the second Adam came to succeed where the first Adam could not. Yeah, David will succeed here, but as we will see as we work our way through his life, he will woefully fall short of God's standard. The true champion must come to stand in the middle and he has come in the person of Jesus. The seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3 after that serpent plunged us into sin will be defeated. His head has been crushed and that's what this passage is ultimately about. Jesus has seen Matthew 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. He has spoken, John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. And he has saved. David was the shadow. Jesus is the substance. Now, does that mean that we can't admire David? Does that mean that we can't look up to his example? No, I think we can. I think we could admire David's zeal and his faith and his wisdom. I mean, David could have easily been one of the members of that Hebrews 11 hall of faith. Could have easily been there. But ultimately, we've got to remember that this story ultimately isn't about David. David. Even those things that we admire in David are things that have come from God. It is God who is the hero of this story. The fight is his. The victory is his. And so the takeaway, brothers and sisters, is don't trust in your bravery. Don't trust in your ability to sling stones because you'll be disappointed and you'll even despair. But trust in him. Look to him, the champion who has come. Look to his storehouse, not your measly reserves. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let His work, his accomplished work, let that work dominate your vision. Oh may God give us the grace to cling to that champion, to have that perspective. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful story, this memorable story, this story of not how we can triumph over our enemies if we just have the right stones in our pouch, but how you, Lord Jesus, the true champion, have paved the way, You have sealed the victory, and now we just walk in that victory. We rest in that victory. And indeed, in all the battles to come, we need that same vision that your servant David had. A vision that remembered the past, and with faith and confidence, walked to an uncertain future. Father, I pray that this would be a passage that would not only encourage us and stir us, but would cause us that much more to see the great love that you have shown for us through Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.